presented by Amazon. Hey, good morning, Playbookers. I'm Raghu Manavalan. It's Monday. Today, SCOTUS hears arguments on a pair of cases that could decide the future of affirmative action in higher education. It's your Politico Playbook Daily Briefing. A bit later, Politico's Zach Stanton stops by to give a couple updates on some key midterm races. But first, another landmark Supreme Court decision from the 1970s is likely to fall this morning. SCOTUS will hear oral arguments in two cases challenging the use of race in college admissions at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. There is, however, little mystery about the outcome. Previous attempts to overturn the use of affirmative action by colleges have failed. In 2003, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, nominated by Ronald Reagan provided the decisive vote in Grutter v. Bollinger. In 2016, Justice Anthony Kennedy, another Reagan nominee, did the same in Fisher versus the University of Texas. Those cases narrowed the use of race in admissions to one permissible goal, diversity. The court has changed radically since 2016, and the six conservative justices have a history of hostility to regions of the University of California v. Bakke, the 1978 opinion that first blessed college affirmative action programs. As the court made clear in Dobbs, if five justices believe that an old case is what they call egregiously wrong, 40 plus years of precedent don't matter. Something a little different today to preview the week. I'm joined by Playbook Deputy Editor Zach Stanton for today's Playbook Daily Briefing. Zach, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you, Raghu? I'm good. I'm good. Um, we're only one week and a day out from Election Day. It just It's like Christmas. It sneaks up on you before you even know it. <laughs> I know this is something you track every day, Zach, uh, big early voting totals for a midterm. Where are we at now? So as of Sunday, we have more than 21 million early ballots cast. Uh, and, you know, many of the same things that I uh, suggested last week remain true, which is mm. that for Democrats, their game plan has long been to try and get the Democratic vote out early. And that allows them in the closing weeks, now closing week of the campaign, to move on uh, to do GOTV efforts among low propensity voters or voters who are still on the fence. And it remains to be seen exactly who is is early voting in many states. Mm. Uh, you know, we we know to some degree in certain states, uh, you know, Georgia has incredibly high uh, early voter turnout. It's roughly on pace, just slightly behind 2020 levels. Nevada, you know, John Ralston of the Nevada Independent has been doing a really great day-by-day look at the early vote count and uh, basically where that's at versus what the targets need to be. And based on past performance, you know, what we can glean from these numbers and like what what numbers Democrats need to hit uh, if they do want to pull off uh, victories in both the Senate and gubernatorial races in that state, which are pretty competitive. But, you know, right now, what we're seeing is that everything is pretty tight. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're a week out. The polls continue to be very close. We see, you know, a shift in favor of Republicans in recent weeks. Uh, and that's certainly been the case uh, in the models, the predictive models by 538 and other sites. You know, 538, as of this writing, their Senate prediction now has Democrats with a 51% chance uh, of capturing or maintaining control in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And Republicans have a 49% chance. Uh, you know, that is a notable decline for Democrats who just a couple of days ago, the odds for them were at 52%. And a couple of weeks ago, they were around 65, 67%. Uh, and 538 is far from alone in that sense. You know, Decision Desk uh, HQ has in recent days given Republicans a just slightly over 50% chance likelihood of uh, winning control of the Senate, which is 
the first time that that's been the case in the decision desk models mm. uh, that they've launched this cycle. Uh, so we've talked on the show a bit about the key races, uh, the Senate seats in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin. Uh, any updates you've seen uh, worth knowing about? Sure. So uh, we can spin through those. Uh, Arizona, you know, the Republicans have had the wind in their sails for the last couple of weeks, if you'll excuse the maritime metaphor in a landlocked <laughs> state. Um you know, but but the Republicans seem to be running as a ticket uh, mm. in a way that Democrats really have not been. Uh, you see Carrie Lake really campaigning hard with Blake Masters, uh, going to events with him, doing a lot of tweets on his behalf, you know, things like that. These, these very sort of public image uh, campaign moments. Uh, you don't have Mark Kelly and Katie Hobbs really uh, doing campaign events together in quite the same way at all. Um, so that's something to watch is whether the Republicans uh, closing strong in Arizona is sort of a tide that, again, for another maritime metaphor, will lift all boats. Um, <laughs> Georgia, we have Herschel Walker in recent weeks has seemingly caught momentum there. Uh, but Raphael Warnock is making his closing pitch to voters centered around his uh, basically his likability and his ability mm -hmm. to kind of work across the aisle and get things done. He, in recent days, has uh, brought John Ossoff, the other senator, his, his ticket mate in 2021 and 2020, uh, out on the campaign trail with him. You know, they're making a really strong effort. And, you know, that race is to some degree going to hinge on crossover voters who will vote Republican uh, in the gubernatorial race, where it's mm. Brian Kemp against Stacey Abrams, but potentially the Kemp Warnock voters, you know, people who are maybe uneasy about voting for Herschel Walker. And in recent days, Republicans have tried to combat that, where you've had Brian Kemp uh, actually come out and endorse Herschel Walker in, in strong terms in a way that, that he hmm. really hadn't uh, prior. So we'll see if that seals the deal. Uh, in Nevada, you know, that race is such a coin flip. Uh, the, the Catherine Cortez Masto versus Adam Laxalt campaign, you know, it is too soon to tell, uh, you know, of course, mm -hmm. both candidates seem to be running kind of the generic Republican and generic Democratic uh, platonic ideal campaigns this year. Um, John Ralston, uh, who, again, is uh, the dean of the Nevada Political Press Corps and the founder of the Nevada Independent uh, and sort of the go to resource for all things about politics in, mm -hmm. in that state, uh, wrote today that, you know, Democrats are ahead, but basically they better hope this is more or less going to be like 2018 because the trends that he's seeing don't favor them right now. And he specifically looked at the early vote there and said that it's it's becoming clear to him that if Democrats don't get their base out, and that is perhaps why you're seeing things like the trip there by President, former President Barack Obama this week, uh, if Democrats don't get their base out and, and hold that base in line, that he thinks Republicans are going to win the close races and that the independents uh, in Nevada are unlikely to swing towards the Democrats uh, in the closing days of the campaign. Hmm. Pennsylvania, last week's debate uh, between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz uh, had a ton of attention around it. You know, the National Press Corps really glommed onto it, looking at it as this sort of the event that you needed to watch. And that was true if you were on Twitter. It was true if you just read the news. It was impossible to miss. It, it seemed like a hugely important moment, and it may very well have been. But what we're seeing uh, at the moment is that it doesn't seem to have changed all that much on the ground in that campaign. Hmm. It doesn't seem to have 
turned voters off Fetterman in the way that some people predicted. Doesn't seem to have sealed the deal for Mehmet Oz in the way that some people predicted. And the race remains, seemingly at this point, ever so slightly, maybe in John Fetterman's favor, Mm. but still very much a toss-up. Sure. Then in Wisconsin, we have uh, a recent couple polls, surprisingly strong for Mandela Barnes, who is aiming to unseat uh, Republican Senator Ron Johnson. And over the weekend, former President Barack Obama uh, campaigned on Mandela Barnes' behalf, and as well as on behalf of Governor Tony Evers, and uh, displayed uncharacteristic fieriness and really going on the attack against Ron Johnson, attacking him for, among other things, uh, uh, private plane usage by his children, you know, tax cuts for wealthy benefactors, and and the idea basically that he is not on your side. Uh, right. And it was again surprising fieriness from Barack Obama, who has always had a reputation, fair or not, of being sort of the the Vulcan, the Spock-like figure who is cool and verged on emotionless from time to time. So. What you're seeing in Wisconsin, and as we saw with Obama's trip to Michigan, and as we're going to see in coming days with his trip to Nevada, followed by his trip to Pennsylvania, is Democrats really leaning on the former president as as the closer, Mm -hmm. as the guy that they want out there Mm -hmm. making this pitch to voters. And you kind of forget what a skilled politician Barack Obama is. And I think Democrats are remembering that, but they also know that he is just so much more well-liked and trusted among independent voters Mm. than really any other major political figure kind of on both sides of the aisle at this point. And so it makes sense for them to trot him out instead of someone like Joe Biden, who at this point in time uh, doesn't have the... the, the favorable uh, and favorable yes, numbers, exactly. perhaps. Yeah, yeah. correct. Exactly. <laughs> that, you know, he doesn't have the same sway among independent voters that the Barack Obama does. I also wanted to talk to you about a few wildcard races that might not get the same focus as the other races uh, that seem interesting to me. Let's start with the Senate race in Utah. If you're not familiar with this race, it's Republican incumbent Mike Lee versus independent Evan McMullen. Uh, McMullen is a former 2016 presidential candidate. He's an anti-Trump independent conservative. Back in August, Politico's Burgess Everett dubbed it the strangest Senate race in America. Uh, Utah Democrats voted to back McMullen during the primaries to increase their chances of defeating Lee. McMullen has stated if he wins the election, he won't caucus with either party. Uh, What are you noticing in this race, Zach? Yeah, so, I mean, Utah Democrats opted not to nominate a candidate so that McMullen could potentially get across the finish line. They Hmm made the strategic uh, and in the eyes of some conservatives, a cynical choice to think that, you know, a a Democratic candidate, a candidate with a D after his or her name uh, would have a harder time getting elected than independent uh, Evan McMullen. And what we've seen in the polls that are available, at least the polls that I've seen that are available, is that both Lee and McMullen are polling around 40 percent. The race seems somewhat up in the air, that there's a a large number of undecided voters, and there's a sense that things are pretty fluid. You know, in in recent days, you've seen uh, Republicans, I think, really try to uh, lean into this image of McMullen as being sort of a Democratic, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing, Mm -hmm. that uh, Tucker Carlson's gone on the attack against him, Ted Cruz has gone on the attack against him, and all of that is strategic because it's an effort to try and fire up the Republican base and fire up Republican voters and conservatives to think, you know, I might not like Mike Lee, but 
I don't want Evan McMullen, a Democrat, and he's not a Democrat, he's a conservative who is an independent conservative mm -hmm. and an anti-Trump conservative, but that that would be enough to disqualify him is, is their hope. Um, disqualify him in the eyes of, of conservative voters. So we'll see if that works and we'll see what the final numbers are. But that race is so bizarre and it is hard to know how it how it shakes out. It is unpredictable in ways that uh, just given the dynamics involved in it and given the variables in it, uh, it is much more difficult to game out than than some of the other more predictable, if undecided races that we see. Uh, one more race I would like to ask you about. You can't talk to Zach Stanton without bringing up Michigan. And thus, <laughs> we move to the Michigan 3rd Congressional District, located in Grand Rapids and surrounding neighborhoods. The background here, this was the district of Representative Peter Meyer, who's primaried by far-right commentator John Gibbs. Uh, Gibbs is a former administration official to former President Trump. You might remember back during primary season, there were some races where far-right candidates were possibly being boosted by Democratic Party funding. There would be ads calling them essentially too Trumpy, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. For your brand, if you're a Republican, to be called too Trumpy or too Republican, you know, uh, John Gibbs was one of those beneficiaries. Uh, Gibbs will be facing off against Democratic candidate Hillary Shulton. Shulton actually ran against Peter Meyer back in 2020. She lost by six points. The district has been redrawn since then, and it's considered more favorable for Democrats. Uh, what are you noticing here, Zach? So, you know, this is an interesting race for a number of reasons. One is that is a genuinely open seat uh, mm. where we have a Republican who's never held office against a Democrat who ran against Peter Meyer, as you said, and, and came up short. But this would be a huge shift politically for the Grand Rapids area, uh, the final sort of straw breaking the camel's back, as it were, uh, if a Democrat is able to be elected to Congress from West Michigan. Mm. You know, this, this area is the area that elected Gerald Ford. It is the area where the DeVos family is based. This area is known for its sort of rock rib traditional conservatism. Uh, it has a large Protestant population, a huge uh, Dutch uh, second, third generation immigrant population uh, that has been sort of the backbone of the Republican Party in the state for, for years and years and years. Uh, but the area is also shifting politically, uh, mm. and that's for a number of reasons, ranging from demographic changes to uh, changes in the way that people with college degrees vote and, and where they align between the two parties. This is a district where I think the odds are in Hillary Shelton's favor. But if this is actually a Republican wave election, you have Republican candidates who the wave will just carry across the finish line, regardless of what uh, the dynamics of perhaps that local race are. And this would be one of those races to watch for that. You know, if John Gibbs is pushed across the finish line, that could be a sign of a, a pretty strong Republican wave. This is mm -hmm. a district that, after the redistricting process, went from sort of a nominally Republican seat to one that Biden won uh, by the single digits. It, it is a, a winnable seat for Democrats. Uh, it is not necessarily, however, a, a done deal. You know, we've mm -hmm. seen Republicans making plays in congressional districts that uh, Biden won by by double digits uh, just two years ago. So it's certainly possible that John Gibbs can win. Uh, Democrats in the state seem to be pretty optimistic about it. But I think this one is certainly one of the races that will be looked at as a sort of key bellwether of uh, a sort of red wave alert. Playbook Deputy Editor Zach Stanton, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. For more news on what's breaking in D.C. right now, subscribe to the Playbook newsletter. That's at politico.com slash playbook. 
Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Also, congratulations to Playbook's Eugene Daniels, who got married over the weekend. I'm Raghuman of Allen. Have a good week. We'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. All employees should have the opportunity and tools to grow their careers, regardless of where they start. That's why Amazon offers 10 different programs designed to help employees advance their careers and move into higher paying roles within Amazon. Learn more at aboutamazon.com.